0: Like so many projects, sequencing human genomes has gotten harder the closer the work has come to completion. A National Institutes of Health team spent seven years heading up a worldwide consortium assembling the last 8% of the human genetic code. For their work, they're finalists in this year's Service to America medals program. NIH scientist Sergi Korin, Arong Rhee were on that leadership team, along with senior investigator Adam Philippi, who joins me now. Dr. Philippi, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Now, we all heard about the human genome mapping, and there was a public project. I think Dr. Collins, you know, headed that up years ago. So I guess people assumed it was all done. We had the whole human genome sequence, but apparently not the case.
1: Yeah. In fact, even as recently as a few years ago, I would run into some colleagues on the NIH campus, and we would talk to them about the human genome, the human reference genome, and they would be shocked in some cases to find... That if you actually would open up the file of that genome and look literally at the ACGs and T's, there were some stretches of millions and millions of the letter N for unknown. And those were the bits of the genome that we wanted to go in and tackle. You might have heard it back in the early 2000s when our first draft was released in 2001 as as mapping the human genome. And so one way to think of it is that you've got the map, but there's a bunch of terra incognita on there that are just gaps unknown. Nobody's seen what's in there before. And those were the bits that we were very curious about, wanted to figure out what was in that unknown.
0: And did the unknown territories relate to some important part of the anatomy, like human intellect, for example, versus the limbic system that every animal has or something like that?
1: Yeah. In fact, they are some of the most important bits of the cell for basic biology, like things like cell division, So the centromeres are where the chromosomes come together and get pulled apart during cell division for anybody that remembers their high school biology. Um, Also, the production of the ribosomes. So these are the molecular machines that crank out the proteins that are needed for every action of your cell. The genes that encode for some of those components of the ribosomes uh, are contained within these unknown regions of the genome. And the hallmark of these unknown bits is that they were the hardest. And they were the hardest because they are highly repetitive. And so if you're thinking of a book, this is like the same phrase repeated over and over and over again, many times. And that makes it difficult to reconstruct. If you think about putting a puzzle together and it's a jigsaw puzzle, and you have a hundred copies of like the same house or the same person, or sometimes I give the where's Waldo example of the same character repeated many, many times. When you pick up a piece and it has Waldo on it, you don't know which of the Waldos it is. And so figuring out where in the genome that particular copy goes is what makes it difficult. And indeed, it's replicated in some cases because it is important. You need a lot of these machines to crank out your proteins. And so there's a lot of copies of that particular gene, and that makes it difficult to reconstruct.
0: And was the project that you did mostly an informatics computational exercise, or were you still looking into cells with electron microscopes? So it
1: is a long-term study in the sense that, you know, we put the capstone on the end here, but it's really building on 20 years of technology development, both in the private and commercial sectors, and both on the actual biochemistry of reading DNA and the informatics of processing the outputs. The real critical breakthrough happened within the last 10 years or so, so so-called long-read DNA sequencing, and that means very simply that we can read longer stretches of the genome than we were able to back in the early 2000s. um, With the human genome project that Francis and others led, we could cap out at maybe 500 to 700 individual letters at a time. And then you would have to put all of those pieces together like a giant puzzle. That was the computational challenge. Turns out that that was an impossible computational challenge for some regions of the genome. The pieces were just too small. Within the last 10 years, we have new technologies now that can read 10,000, even up to a million characters at a time. And now the puzzle pieces finally reach the length that they're big enough. We were able to develop some new algorithmic approaches to go along with those and stitch those very long pieces back together again and get a very complete and accurate view of this genome map.
0: So the durability of Moore's Law, you might say, is what enabled this to happen 20 years after the original sequencing.
1: Yeah, and it's a really cool hand-in-hand of the computational advancements as well as the biochemistry and the engineering advancements, because... I think it's fair to say that these technologies like nanopore sequencing that we use in this approach uh, wouldn't even be possible 20 years ago because you didn't have machine learning of the type that we have now. And a lot of these machine learning algorithms that you hear in the press for natural language processing and so forth are used to translate this electrical signal that we get from the nanopores into predictions of the ACGs and Ts. And so it's really—I call myself a bioinformatician—and that means I straddle this line between computer science and algorithms, and the biochemistry and molecular biology. And it's it's really gratifying to see those two fields progress over the last twenty years and the, the way they have. And neither of them. Um, would have progressed without the other in this case.
0: We're speaking with Dr. Adam Philippi. He is the head of the Human Genome Informatics Section at the National Human Genome Research Institute, part of the NIH. He's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And is there practical application for this final 8% of the mapping? Can it help medicine advance in some way or or some other area that might be useful that we could not do before this capstone, as you put it?
1: Yeah, it it just makes everything easier and more accurate. And so when we talk about medical diagnostics, if you have your genome done in the clinic and they're looking for a causative variant of a disease, they'll map your individual genome and they'll compare it against a known reference genome and they'll look for differences. And we call those differences variants. And if you have differences in critical parts of the genome, those rise to the top as a candidate that might be responsible for your disease. And if they can pinpoint exactly what in your genome caused the disease, the hope is you can develop therapies to then treat it. And so imagine you're looking for this needle in the haystack, but you're missing 8% of the haystack. If you get very unlucky and that needle's in that 8% that you're missing, you will never find it. And so the hope of this project is that some of the rare diseases that have gone yet you know, undiscovered in terms of a genetic cause, we know it's a disease, we know it's genetic because you can see the inheritance pattern from your parents and your grandparents and so forth, but we haven't found the cause. The hope is we'll find some of those causes now in this new 8%. And we're optimistic about that because, as we discussed earlier, some of this part of the genome really relates to fundamental cellular processes, and so we think they could have significant effects.
0: And just describe the worldwide consortium aspect of this. The three of you at NIH kind of led this, but it sounds like it was a really vast effort with a lot of coordination around the globe.
1: Yeah, well, first and foremost, you know, the three of us are SAMIs finalists by way of being federal employees. There was a a few other very uh, essential partners that ended up leading this consortium. In fact, I launched this consortium in, you know, around 2017 with Dr. Karen Miga, who's an assistant professor and co-director of the Genomics Center at University of California, Santa Cruz. And Karen was just an incredible partner throughout this project, and it would not have happened without her partnership. Um, and taking this on together, Evan Eichler was also a key contributor at University of Washington and all of our other contributors around the U.S. and the globe. But what was really gratifying about this project is that rather than kind of the initial human genome project, that was really kind of a top down made at governmental levels. We're going to finish the human genome. Let's assign millions, and millions of dollars to this project and go. This was much more of a grassroots kind of bottom up effort. That it started with just Karen and I and really no dedicated funding for this project. And we said, let's do it. And we just started building this coalition of people that were similarly interested in these regions of the genome. And, you know, like rolling the small little snowball downhill, it just started picking up steam over the years. And we made some really big successes in like 2019, 2020, we finished the first chromosome that was chromosome X at the time. And that really kind of proved to the community that we had the capability of doing this. And people then just started coming out of the woodwork and joining the consortium as we went with all sorts of complementary experiences that in the end, we were able to put together this very nice collection of papers that not just showed the complete genome, but also showed all of the interesting biology that was happening in these unique regions. So it was a very organic growth of a consortium because, you know, when you're doing great science and making exciting discoveries, you know, everybody wants to be a part of it. And so it was not hard to make friends throughout the course of this consortium.
0: And was there a single moment when you all realized, by gosh, we're there, we've got it?
1: Yeah, in fact, um, maybe not the single moment when we were done, but the single moment when we realized that we could be done, if we just put a little more work into it. And that was really brought on by my postdoc at the time, another Sergey, Sergey Nurk, who was a visiting postdoc in my lab at the NIH. He brought some early results to me right at the beginning of the pandemic in the spring of 2020 and kind of i'd like to say laid it on my desk but it was on a computer screen <laughs> he brought his laptop in showed me these early results and this is when we had taken all of the latest dna sequencing technologies and combined it together and showed what we could actually do with the latest and greatest sequencing technologies and some of the methods that Sergei himself had developed. And the puzzle was snapping together for the first time. And there was parts of the genome that we had never seen assemble, which is the word we call putting this puzzle together. Those parts just snapped together, just like everything made sense. We looked at it and it was that moment where we looked at each other and thought, wow, we have a chance of actually doing this.
0: Dr. Adam Philippi is head of the Human Genome Informatics Section at the National Human Genome Research Institute. That's part of the NIH. Along with Dr. Sergey Korin and Arang Rhee, he's a finalist in this year's Service to America medals program. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thanks so much for having us, Tom. It's a pleasure to share our work with your listeners.
0: And we'll post this interview along with all of our Sami's finalists at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members, raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work work. Hello,
2: and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being
3: here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine.
2: You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Aniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How has your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader?
3: The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground. Because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a living wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both ways. Uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two
2: together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all?
3: Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot. And please understand when I say I cannot, it's, 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 what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay. They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done.
2: As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style?
3: You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders gets me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause and, and and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again, because I'm the one that merely cast division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain.
2: I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. (laughs) Um, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a
3: leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the deep south. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I, I gotta quit saying this, but but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God, and that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible and with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right, treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It is it, it's, it's needed uh and you know i try to portray that i try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity and so being in the deep south you know you 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 just learn those things and that's what has helped me uh throughout my path as a union leader and it's always nice that whole approach
2: because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks different energy it's it's always straightforward yes. honest here's the truth yes and it's, it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career?
3: You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. That's yes. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did. Right. Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, And it's membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today. That's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough.
2: And one question that's always kind of interesting at at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before. Mm -hmm. um, Is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you
3: might even think back on today it was my grandmother you know with the understanding that when and when i was born right as i said i was born in the deep south my father worked extremely hard we didn't have a whole lot you know my i had 12 siblings and so when i was born i was very sick a matter of fact doctor said i wouldn't live to be 16 years old a doctor said i wouldn't ever hold a job but my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt.
2: Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership.
0: Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.